This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. I have an experience from Australia where the accompanying teacher on a school group breaks down physically and kind of has an emotional breakdown and becomes almost catatonic and unfunctional. And he's thinking we're going to be able to helicopter him out. We're in a super remote location. It's not going to happen and we, we need to get to the river. That's our way out is floating down the river. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we are joined by Moose Mutlow, who is going to help us to explore how we can find value while managing misadventure. We have already spent a lot of time discussing the positive benefits of adventure. We've also shared many steps that we can take to avoid having adventure experiences go off the rails. But what happens when they do, and can this be a positive? At the heart of this episode is identifying what misadventure looks like, why it's valuable, and how we can guide people through misadventure so that they can find that value. Joining us on this journey is Moose Mutlow. Moose has nearly four decades of traditional and alternative education experience around the globe. He has course-directed 58-day Outward Bound instructor trainings in Appalachia, been a deputy headmaster in the Kalahari Desert, managed a beach concession on the Mediterranean, slogged through Australian rainforests with middle school students, has more than 2,000 days of a field instruction in a wilderness setting, spent four months as the interim head for an elite ski academy, and returned to Outward Bound to instruct a canoe program for veterans on the Gulf of Mexico. Since 2002, Moose has been a member and senior trainer of Yosemite Search and Rescue, working as a technician and within incident command at one of the busiest SAR operations in the world. Moose currently works for Nature Bridge in Yosemite National Park as the Senior Project Director for Planning, Design, and Construction of the National Environmental Science Centre. Moose has written two books, Searching, Finding Purpose, Laughter, and Distraction Through Search and Rescue, and When Accidents Happen, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer. We have been saving Moose's episode for Season 2. We interviewed him last spring when California had a record snowpack. Moose had a lot to say, and this is one of our longer episodes. So here we go, Moose Mutlow on managing misadventure. Hello, Moose. Welcome to the show. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm outside of Yosemite, sunny California, with 244% snowpack. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's a huge snow year there this year. 
It's glorious. It's the rivers went crazy. We had debris flows. The atmospheric rivers really cranked us up and supercharged the landscape. It's wonderful. Are are you starting to see some pretty big flows in the rivers? Yeah, we we had we were, Yosemite actually got closed because they were looking at historic uh, floods post ninety seven. Um, but it didn't peak off because we got a bit of cold weather and it chilled out up high. But it's it's going to be cranking through June, which generally sort of indicates that's the drowning window in Yosemite from May to mid-June is when you see incidents. Yeah, hopefully people are safe out there. They, they You would hope. But p- people get seduced. Did they take that one step a little bit too far or they reach down to touch the water and things happen pretty quick in white water? Absolutely. So how did you get your name? Where does moose come from? Uh, I got, uh, I was working for a summer camp in the north of England and there was a big deer head on the local pub wall that was called the moose. And every Friday I would be greeted by the management team to tell me that the job they'd given me the previous week wasn't a good fit and that they would think about what I would be doing the next week. And so I would be sent to the pub and I would sit below the big moose head and which is this deer head. And one day people were saying good evening to the moose as they walked in the bar and I said hi back and it kind of stuck. And we're working with kids, it's much easier for a kid to hit remember the name moose. They're never shy in asking you a question. So having worked with a lot of children early in my career as a camp counselor, it just stayed. And it's good alliteration, Moose Mutlow. It's, it's a memorable name. It's helpful. Totally. And how about your path into the adventure industry? You've got quite a wide background. And uh, how did you get started and get to where you are? I'd always been in the outdoors. My family would do a lot of hiking and walking and, and on the edge of climbing. And then as I go into my teen years, I started doing adventure camps. And then when I didn't get into college on my first go, I ended up working on the land and I ended up working within fisheries and being a fishing guide and a fishery officer. And I ended up in Southern Africa, actually working in the Transvaal on a, on a trout river out there and became further romanced by the idea, idea of wilderness and outdoor spaces. And that stayed through my college time, guiding on the rivers. And when I went to Australia and then ultimately the States, I realized you could make a pretty good living. And so that, allowed me to sort of track into guiding and teaching. I went back to college and got my teaching cert to get a bit more credibility, which has helped in the long run as far as having the legs and the ability to move across disciplines. Um, yeah, and it, it's, it's fun to be in the outdoors. I'm a little desk-bound right now with my pro- current job as a project manager, but I do get to be outside a fair amount still. Right. And what is your current position? I work for a largest provider of environmental education in the national parks in the U.S. called Nature Bridge. And they serve about 30,000 students a year across four or five different park units. And I'm currently the, the project managing a $50 million build out of their environmental education campus in Yosemite National Park. That'll be a long term home for education for young people. And you have been uh, with uh, Search and Rescue. Are you still doing that with with Yosemite, Yosar? Yeah. So as a, working for a nonprofit, there's a little bit of flexibility there. And with the level of expertise I have, particularly in swift water, 
I, there are opportunities that open up to work with Yosemite Search and Rescue. So I just, I think I just taught my 20th year of swift water rescue in the park and I help coordinate the swift water response team. And then I'm a major player with what we call family liaison, which is the representative for the instant commander to the family when we're doing a, a search or recovery. And so I do a lot of work uh, in our park and nationally working with family liaison groups around the country to try and get a, a high level of care for people when they're facing crisis. For the focus today, how do you define a misadventure? We're talking about misadventure and how we can hopefully try and recognize that and maybe turn it around. Uh, a misadventure is anything that you can sit down afterwards, look at a, a family member or friend and have a good story. A misadventure, the spine of it has a tale to tell and in that moment it has a, a, a lesson. And it, I think that one of the things that we've we've suffered with in the in recent years is with a elevation of uh, social media in particular, our ability to tell stories has deteriorated because unless we're doing a five second slideshow on Insta with three slides telling the story, uh, it is it it hasn't got the same depth as when we didn't have access to the internet and we were sitting around a dinner table. Um, so I, I think a misadventure here is also opportunity to rediscover storytelling as a way to have to learn from lessons, lessons of experiences. Yeah, and I've said this before on our show, some of the best lessons you can learn are from other people's mistakes. Oh, when I, was, when I worked for Outward Bound in North Carolina, we had this great dining room. And every evening when you were in base camp, you would regale each other with these stories of, of just terribly bad decisions they were they were wonderful because you would have we would all be laughing because they would just just be so silly what you'd done and then you would understand the cascade effect because someone would say i did this and this you could see where the story was going and that was an extraordinary apprenticeship not just in storytelling but in learning from other people's mistakes and then how would you separate uh, or describe the difference between an adventure and a misadventure? I think that's an interesting one. I mean, I've been on adventures that haven't had many, much stuff going on, but I don't tell stories about them as much. It's like an adventure actually has less story potential. Shackleton's story isn't that interesting, except for he had a series of disasters that he got himself out of with masterful skill. Scott's story is about carrying geology supplies when they should have dumped them and moved a bit lighter. Uh, Mudson was incredibly fantastic and he used the dog team and then ate his dogs and traveled on skis. We don't talk about him as much as a culture aspect to that, but really we like disaster. It's, it's why the way the news works. If you say how many people have done these really successful peak ascents in Alaska this year, you wouldn't name any, but you would talk about the disasters where people haven't come back. Yeah, we don't focus on the, the success as kind of a non-event, whereas the lack of success or the misadventure is high profile. But that's the, that, that's the history of storytelling. Is, is If it all went well, you really haven't got a story. It's, I went to the shops, I bought a loaf of bread, I came home. It isn't really a story. What's the story is if you managed to like rear-end somebody in the parking lot and then there was a trolley that ran away and... There are all these sort of little bits that add up to make it interesting. 
bad texture. Yeah, and there's these untold stories where there is success, so it's not really a story, a, a huge story. But during that successful adventure, there's a whole bunch of decision points and potential sideways things that could happen, or things did go sideways, but they got brought back. And because you were successful, you kind of just focus on the the success of it all, and you don't recall the obstacles in the journey. Well. I- I have a friend of mine who had a pretty serious injury in a remote area in northern Nepal, and he suffered a pretty severe head injury. And they they had lots of binary decisions to make in order to get him out. That they got to forks in the road, and they had to make a decision: Are we going to hike in? We're going to try and get a helicopter in. And then, if we get a helicopter in, are we going to be able to get the surgeon in place in Kathmandu? And there are all these pieces that added up. And his story is about ultimately really good decisions made at every single junction. Because if they hadn't made that right binary choice, then the story would have been very short and not as wonderful. And he survived and he gets full function back. And You could, you could lay it out as a, as a decision-making flowchart after the event and show how could have gone bad, but didn't go bad. Next next decision point could have gone bad, but didn't go bad. Well, he actually edited out in the cascade, the idea of the cascade where people keep getting themselves deeper and deeper into trouble. Every time he dropped off that cascade, they edited out and they were able to stabilize and think about what they were doing next. Right. Just take a, take a little pause. Right. Is that if you look at when accidents start to play out, things can happen incredibly fast. And sometimes you feel pain, powerless in that moment to, to actually elicit change uh, and potentially stopping and taking a deep breath and stepping back from that edge. You've edited out, you, you've stopped that cascade from happening. But a lot of that is based on that intuitive moment is that is with more exposure in the outdoors, you make more and more intuitive decisions based on your experience that you don't necessarily articulate or recognize at that moment. And giving yourself the room to make an intuitive choice, which is stepping back and taking a deep breath, is, the, is often the way to actually not turn something into an epic. And the skill of the master practitioner, the person who really knows what they're doing, is to be able to articulate intuition. Is to be able to look at the apprentice and look at the person they're mentoring and say, this is, this is what's going through my mind right now as I look at this slope and check for snow instability. I'm thinking about the forecast. I'm thinking about the rain that happened late yesterday. Actually going to that checklist rather than just using it like a computer drive and just just rolling through it silently, it's articulating that process. With and that's Gre- what apprentices used to have. They had a master who would articulate the process. With Grant Statham, a, pr- a previous guest on the show here, he's a risk specialist in Canada and a mountain guide. And he had a good point about intuition where he, he recommends using intuition to stop doing something or, or back off as opposed to using intuition to guide you to carry on with something. And then you use logic and data and, and group discussion and all those other things to actually move forward and, and make a decision to go forward um, with something. But backing off is where you that reflective time and using intuition if it doesn't feel right maybe it's a good time to back off 
And then in Avalanche Search and Rescue, we call it a mental map update when we're doing a, a search with, with transceivers and, and searching for a missing subject uh, under the snow. And that is basically causing the searcher, the person actively doing the work to reflect and just take a moment. And that's situational awareness and looking around you and figuring out what information you have and what information you don't have. And that's kind of, I think, what we're talking about here, or you're talking about, is the uh, that reflective point there, and then making the decision. And hopefully you've taken a little bit of time, not much maybe, but a little bit of time to actually analyze things. And I think to get in the habit of passing on knowledge the idea that if you don't create the space to have a discussion then there won't be any discussion i'm very picky about who i boat with i i'll only boat with people who i see their head cranking around to watch me come to a rapid because that's what i'm doing for them if they're totally in the big water and yucking up and having a really good time and they never spin their head and they never look for me then i don't want to boat with them because no hey, i haven't got my back but i also need to articulate that's my need and not just sort of move beyond it and explain why. And it's because, you know, a flip can come out of nowhere on a long, cold swim in high helical flow. You're in the middle of the river for a long period of time. You want somebody to come and get you. And it can happen to anybody at any time. Yeah. So, and it happens all the time. You see, I mean, on the high end, the Red Bull end, you always see elite athletes who, who are pushing so hard for whatever motivation and they pay for it with their lives. But there's a lot of mid-range athletes who take an unnecessary risk and become the story as opposed to being able to tell their story. And it, I, I'm not sure where that, everybody has a different level of motivation. But I think, I think early on when, when people were in the mountains for the view or the texture or the experience, the, the Climbing the peak wasn't necessarily the ultimate goal. And as soon as you become focused on that end goal, you only succeed if you get to the peak or you get to X or you're committed to three crossings at high flow on the PCT. I think you, I would offer that you might have lost the point of being out there because the lessons that you're learning are actually subsumed by the need to travel really fast or to be quicker than anybody else. We're lighter than anybody else. It's, so what are yeah. some of the key mistakes that you've seen people that, that lead to misadventures and maybe uh, something specific to Yosemite? Under, they underestimate the challenge and they overestimate their ability. And that they don't plan, to, they, they're not, they can plan to get to the peak. Half Dome's a classic example. People come from San Francisco at sea level. They finish late on a Friday. They come busting up the park. They're going to race up to seven or 8,000 feet. They don't realize how much the change in altitude is going to affect them. They take one bottle of water. They don't take any snack. They get to the top and there's a thunderstorm because they actually hadn't looked at the weather forecast. And then they have a total epic coming back. And they, for the most part, 99.9% .9 of the time, they get away with it. And you have a good story because you got boomed off the cables. But when it goes wrong, you have 42 people trapped on the cables and you have the largest essentially sort of ground rescue in the history of the park service. Yeah, it's uh, it's one that is definitely underestimated. Just, oh, we're just going to go up Half Dome. And I've done it myself when the cables are down in uh, late in the season. 
and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Perfect day to be there is before the smoke showed up in the fall. This is a, before COVID actually a number of years ago. And my wife and I are there and we kind of, I'm a mountain guide here and I kind of, and a rescue specialist and I kind of over prepare. So we'd brought all kinds of stuff that we probably didn't even need. Um, mainly what you need is probably a harness and prussics to, to go up the cables there. Um, but we, ha- we had helmets, <laughs> which, you know, it's like, what's going to fall on you there. Maybe somebody else's water bottle, but, <laughs> um, you know, all kinds of extra stuff. And so we, we go up and, and we're the, we're there with one other couple on, on the summit. Uh, it was not a busy day, but beautiful day. And then we descend and there's a, a woman there who's, who's at the saddle at the base of the cables. And she's quite excited for us. She's just walked, hiked up and, and, uh, she says, She's probably in her late sixties, maybe early seventies, but quite a fit-looking lady, solo. And she says, "Oh, can I take your photo? You know, with your camera, camera." And we're like, "Oh yeah!" So she grabs a photo of us, and then she rolls. She's wearing shorts and a down jacket, and uh, she rolls up the sleeves of her down jacket after she takes a photo of us, and off she goes up the cables, just just solo bat matting up. And, and she passes another party of, of uh, two young guys who are fully attached to the cables and, and going up in a, you know, kind of what would seem to be a more safe fashion. And she, they just get out of her way and she just fires past them. And I, I got the feeling that she does this for exercise or fairly regularly kind of thing. But she was, we, we had no idea. We had thought, oh yeah, she's just up here to hike to the base and see what people are doing. And then off she goes. And she was having an adventure. But if you were in Austria and you were one of those alpinist clubs, that behavior wouldn't be anything extraordinary because you've got people who've grown up in the mountains. And my nephew has this great story about being in Austria, and he essentially apprentices himself to a 60 or 70-year-old woman who's in the club. And she knows all the routes, and she's free soloing stuff. And it's a a different cultural appreciation or, or understanding of the kinesthetic of being in the mountains. We all have, we all bring our different stories. And that brings us back to that idea of judgment is media and us as individuals at times can be far too judgy after accidents or around people's behavior with the benefit of of hindsight. And that there is a willingness to, I don't want to say shame necessarily, but to put people in their place because they've made a bad decision. And that makes people fearful of of stepping out where i think actually we should be reinforcing well they're out in the hills and thinking about when how were they mentored or not mentored and was there a socioeconomic piece that isolated them from opportunity and actually creating a much more welcoming atmosphere for people to make safe mistakes a failure is is to ultimately diversify and include everybody in the outdoor community because we have a more powerful voice and I, I think we all have a responsibility to look around at other users and see how we can we can help them develop a better understanding of how to be safe and ensure their own adventures they come back from to tell their story it's it, rock climbing can be a fiercely independent sport and yet i grew up at a time when there were rock climbing clubs that you would go out en masse and climb with multiple top ropes. And we didn't, we had a a community and that community exists 
in some places, but not in the same way it did when I grew up. Because it's, it's less about the individual and it was more about the community. And the community is a powerful thing. Yeah, I think it's important to try and keep that club style uh, setting going for activities, whatever the activities are, because it can be a, a social space, but also a great place for people to uh, learn, uh, gain skills and and move, move, move up their game, but in a safe way. And then, you know, once like this, this woman that I was talking about, she's obviously capable and competent, but you were saying uh, that that is a, a site of many disasters as well. Um, do you have any other other examples in the Yosemite area of uh, misadventure and how things went sideways for folks? There's um, we had an incident last year with uh, a group that was hiking Tanaya Canyon, which is it's a it's a pretty beefy scramble. You come in high, subalpine, and there's a series of a couple of rappels and some pretty exposed bouldering. And a group came in that had met online and on the initial approach, one of them steps on a bit of a polished wet piece of granite and goes several hundred feet and ends up dying on scene. And the group did a pretty good job of accessing the individual when they fell. And considering they didn't really know each other, they did an outstanding job of getting SAR uh, scaled up. But they didn't anticipate that when they set off on, on day one. They had no idea that this glorious adventure in, in the fall with all the colors and great hiking weather was going to end in disaster. It's, I think in the parks, you have, in our park, we have about 220 incidents a year with 12 to 20 fatalities. And some of those fatalities are people essentially waking up dead where they They've come to a place that they love and it's their time. They just pass away in the night. But you'll have, I don't know, eight or 10 traumatic incidents with falls or drownings or just getting really unlucky. So many of them are just unlucky. It's, it's a combination of small incidents at the start and then something really big happening. We've talked about this previously on the show, the idea of luck and how you don't want to rely on luck, but if it works out for you, that's great. But then hopefully you can take that learning and look back and say, I did get lucky there. And how can I try and ensure that I don't need luck on the next adventure that could turn into misadventure. Well, and, and it's understanding luck. The key part of that is what is luck is luck is experience. Ultimately <laughs> you, you have that piece that says, not necessarily the little voice, but you have the kinesthetics to rebalance when a rock breaks. Or when you get clonked by a log coming down the river and you're out in your boat, you have a little bit of a hip check and you, you do a little bit of a slap support and you're up. Or you smell something in the air and you realize there's a grizzly bear kill a little bit closer than you thought it was. And that huffing that you heard a little way back in the willows, you need to back off and be a, do your right behavior rather than blundering forward for your insta moment. Um, yeah, I think understanding luck. Luck is very, is very rarely pure chance. There's, there's a lot of other factors that are involved in it. I've heard people describe an adventure as something that doesn't happen until something goes wrong. Lindsay Dyer also described it this way back in the second episode of season one. 
For many professional guides and instructors, their guests are hiring them because they don't want anything to go wrong. I can tell you that my guests definitely don't have um, a lot of time to lose and they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to get lost. And uh, a lot of them don't want to suffer that much. So it's almost like when they hire a guide or an instructor, a professional guide or instructor, they are getting an insurance policy against something going wrong. Now, we've explored the value of adventure quite a bit in our first season. What do you think the value of experiencing misadventure is and how do we frame this to people? Well, the point you make there is that people hire guides so things don't go wrong. But when you listen to their adventures after you've left, you would believe that they had just conquered Everest without oxygen twice in a row because they've they've mythologized what their experience is. So running a bit late on food meant they were starving for 24 hours. It, 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 they take their own angle on whatever it is. And I think you're right about having safe adventure, but it, they, they get the same rush of endorphins on that slope that's a bit steeper and shedding some snow than you would if you were steeping, you were doing super steep shoots. It's, it's all a question of scale. And so I think there's that um, myth played a really important part in people's lives at one point because it sort of allowed you to stand out a little bit more in the crowd or give you a bit more identity. And I think people, when they come on adventure, it, it's they're on a quest and they will spin it however they choose to when they go back to the office and their mundane lives to be greater, faster, and more dangerous. And I've forgotten what your question was because I got really hung up on the myth thing. So I apologize for that. So you can just make sure I come back to the question. Well, I think the challenge that people can have if they haven't, if they're not that resilient and they haven't experienced a lot of hardship or challenge is that people may be in that situation where it is tough and they can have a hard time finding the the reason. It's like, why am I doing this? Why should I want to do this? And so I think one of the challenges that newer guides and instructors and sometimes parents can have is rallying the troops around the idea that this is actually a good thing. Well, I, building resilience is based on going through stuff that pushes us to our limit and we discover a new limit. But we also exist in a culture that says challenge by choice. And I, I think that people often uh, are romanced to try something and they haven't realized how deep in they're going to get and how quickly. And I, I see that particularly within adventure programs with young people is the programs that were run 30 and 40 years ago, which had a high degree of suffering in them. I mean, I think at North Carolina, we were required to do an all-night uh, sort of roto wrestle, fighting through the rhododendrons to sort of give people this desperate experience. Of, of And you would move a mile. If you walked a mile an hour on your belly like a salamander in the, in the rhododendrons, you were doing well dragging your backpacks. That, that suffering served a purpose. And I think now, for lots of reasons, we are less resilient. There are, there are certain parts of, of communities and society that are less resi res, uh, resilient. And therefore, the, 
the bar is lower for what is what is adventure. It's more attainable. You don't you don't need to go off and do moose's tooth. You don't need to go off and do these sort of super exposed routes. You can get the same thing out of a class four scramble. As soon as you tie in, it's essentially fifth class. It's essentially extreme. And so the manufactured contrived experience, even though we know it's that, almost has the same effect on the majority of people as far as what they're going to be more able to do. That's why ropes courses are really successful, or were. It's a completely contrived experience that in a moment exposes people to a perceived level of risk that they've never been in before with zero exposure. Whereas hiking bear country is, is a uniquely challenging experience, which, which a skilled guide can facilitate and really explain in its scale about what you're taking on. Because you're in this thing that is gloriously, predictably unpredictable. So I've thought about this a, a lot over the, the last little while. Probably the most challenging situation I had this winter was skiing with this 16-year-old who I have skied with actually a lot uh, over the last few years. Very good skier. But I ended up putting him in this situation where um, he was actually really stressed. And, and that stress stayed with him for a long period of time afterwards we had to traverse across uh, a very steep slope the reason i chose that location is a he had the experience and the skills to do it and we only had to traverse across so that the chance of him actually falling was actually very very low uh, and i was spotting him below so he wasn't really going to get past me but the perception there was that he really pushed his limits like he was he was he was freaked out for sure. And I could, and I could feel the stress and I was positive and, and, you know, confident and, you know, kept him focused. And we worked across the slope and, and it was fine. And it accessed the area we're going to do. And that worked out well, but I didn't realize how stressed he was until afterwards. And in fact, it, it lasted like all day even though we stopped and talked through it and I, and I tried to frame it in a way that was valuable for him to, to get those lessons um, learned. And it, I would say that it was an adventure in the moment, but it could have easily been perceived by him and it was as a misadventure, as something that he wouldn't have wanted to go and do again. Even though he left with this great story to tell and it was good because it pushed his envelope. And I think that's one of the keys with misadventures and, and adventure generally is, is we're trying to take people to the edge without taking them over the edge so that they have the story to tell their friends of like, wow, this is this crazy thing we did, but also to yourself where you can say, wow, I did that. And if I could do that in time, I could probably do more. And you raise a good thing about stress is out of stress is arguably where the resilience is built. And in young people, we don't do enough facilitation about what they're experiencing and to help them come from that hyper aroused state to bring them down to a place where they're able to perform to function is they, they move into that, what you would say is injured in terms of stress management. 
where they are unable to deal with complexity because they're focused on just how gripped they are or they're talking about a traumatic experience and they've moved beyond being able to enjoy the core experience. So I think as guides, we need to understand things like the stress continuum to look at performance and recognize that you you have your maximum gains in this period just outside of your comfort zone that incrementally you build on and that taking something to the most extreme is not necessarily going to have the best results. It's like the idea that you would be taught to swim by being thrown in a swimming pool and apparently natural forces kick in and then you learn to swim. Well, for 10% of the people, maybe that works and 1% maybe drown, but 90% don't want to go near the water again. Um, it's the school of hard knocks works for a very small group of, of athletes and professionals. Most of us are much softer. We're more yielding. And so I think I like the idea in Germany, uh, insurance companies are now working with local authorities to build playgrounds and they have an initiative where they're removing a lot of the safety from playgrounds so that now if you're in a climbing structure you might fall your maximum fall to a net is two to three meters and what they're finding is they want to build the kinesthetic knowledge in people to manage their bodies more effectively in the outdoors and by doing that you lower the risk long term for insurance but that, that's a really good example of achievable failure in a way, that a child falling is part of learning what's going on. Whereas the perceived idea of falling off a cliff, that's, that's a pretty complex uh, challenge to work around for a young person. Yeah. The stress continuum is an amazing thing. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's the Marine Corps developed it to figure out how to, if you were combat ready, and now it's been moved into the first responder world. And I think for professional athletes, it's a really good one as well because it identifies where you've stepped too far forward and need to take a break and step back. Because if you don't identify where you're too, ex you're too extended, that's probably the moment at which your life is in danger because of the risk you're taking. You're just taking a step back here when you're talking about failure in business. There's the there's the philosophy of fail faster, right? Like you go out, you try your idea and you see if it works or not. And when it doesn't work, it gives you an opportunity to take that idea and build on it and make it better. better. And so the faster you can find the weakness in your idea, the faster you can fix it and make it better. And yet sometimes in, in adventure experiences, people are afraid to fail. Like skiing, teaching skiing is a perfect example where people come out and they actually don't want to fall. And once they do fall, then they realize, well, that's actually not that bad. And this is what I need to do to not fall. But if you're, the more afraid you are of failing, the worse it, it can become for people. Well, I, I, that fail fast has really come out of venture capital and, the, and, and what I would say the digital world. And it, I think the fail fast if you looked at it on a business sense, you would see they're failing fast with other people's money. They're failing fast with something else. Whereas failing with yourself is a much more uh, intrinsically dangerous thing. And I think good guides and good teachers uh, don't sugarcoat everything as a success. 
they actually demonstrate that it does it success and failure. It doesn't really matter what label you put on it. That falling, understanding how safety systems work in climbing, having really good in the water skills when your boat flips, that's a good progression. And what has happened in a lot of skill-based work that I've seen is an accelerated path to a major peak. Like you have young children climbing El Cap. They haven't served an apprenticeship and they're jugging a rope. And it's an extraordinary experience. But are they truly at a point cognitively to understand what they're taking on? And I would argue no. And if you aren't cognitively ready, then the lessons that are potentially there are not as, as great. Like I learned stuff at Simmons Yacht, which is this thing on the Y. It was 45 feet high. I think about my first climbing days and it was extraordinary. And the thing was barely vertical. I was climbed in and it was like sort of grippy limestone. And it was pitched perfectly for a kid who was 10 years old. And again, it comes back to that point with extreme sports in particular, the same forces that guide parents to make bad decisions for their kid on the baseball diamond or on the soccer field where they're too involved in the kid's learning actually hinder the lessons that they're taking out of the sport. The difference in the outdoors with all the sports that we love and are attached to is beyond your playing career, you still can get a lot out of them. And you don't want to damage somebody so much with this accelerated learning path that they become turned off and they never want to do it again. There's no wisdom in that. And you've lost, a, for me, you've lost an advocate for wild spaces. I, I, I see every single child that we work with or every young person as a constituent who is going to articulate for a cleaner world with better water, healthy forests, great oceans. That's what every, every outdoor sport should be trying to promote. No, you're, so you're bang on. I love that idea of the failing faster with other other people's money. And sometimes we get people that will come out and they don't mind failing faster. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, this is a really bad philosophy for you. Like you need to, you need to dial it back, slow it down. You know, you definitely have more will than skill. We need to, we need to flip that around. But at the same time, there are some people that have way more skill than will and as a result they end up holding themselves so far back that they don't get the full value of of the experience and i think great instructors will intuitively create that environment where there's the handrail to to make sure that they don't get into too much trouble while still having the opportunity to experience some discomfort and a little bit of fear and that sense of pushing, being able to push yourself and, and maybe things go wrong, but it's in a controlled setting. Now, talking about uncontrolled settings, um, one of the most well-known stories where someone was able to turn a misadventure into an adventure involves the explorer of Ernest Shackleton, which you touched on earlier. Can you share that story with us and maybe some of the things that we can learn from it? So Shackleton was uh, in the same group of explorers as Scott and Amundsen with the idea of, of racing to the South Pole. And he was uh, Irish. He uh, suffered uh, because of his nationality. He didn't get to be on expeditions with Scott. Uh, he was a bit of a threat, arguably. Um, and he goes off on his own expedition and he ends up losing his ship on the pack ice. Uh, he 
comes out of it, gets everybody off the ship, and then they end up marooned for a year and a bit. He crosses the ocean at one point to get to South Georgia with a couple of other people, and they then initiate a rescue, which importantly, he comes back and nobody in the entire ship's crew is lost. They all survive. Very unusual within Arctic and Antarctic expeditions that everybody makes it. And it's because of Shackleton's understanding of leadership. There's a, there's a great piece in one of the books that talks about the fact, although Shackleton, they knew he didn't like one of the people on the boat, you could never tell at that moment that he had disdain for this individual. He treated everybody equally. And as a result, he modeled this idea of we're all in this together and we're all going to get out of it together. I mean, Shackleton's, Shackleton's success is out of failure at every turn again. He made the right decision and took the appropriate risk. So what do you think enabled Shackleton to keep his team going? Like there was hardship and danger, and uh, I think you kind of alluded to some of it here, but uh, that's that's pretty critical because if you have mutiny, you're not going anywhere, and he was able to keep them going. If if you read if you read the books, and you look at Shackleton's approach, you could argue he was an accessible leader who never let anybody, uh, never put anybody under the misapprehension that he wasn't in charge but he was accessible and he remained focused on the welfare of his crew. And it wasn't classist. It wasn't based around, uh, I'm going to eat over here. You guys eat over here. They were all in it together, which was very different from a lot of colonial based expeditions that had real hierarchy and this perception that this person's discovering something that's always been there. He had a different approach that may have been born out of his own experience in society. So, so it was a true team approach. Yeah. And that's the other piece to think about is that if we, if we look at all these expeditions that people have done, there's a great story about um, Roosevelt and I think they call it the river of death or something. And he goes to South America with his son Kermit and he sails down a river and it's this outrageous story um, on lots of levels. But the fascinating piece is that the Brazilian who guided them, uh, and I can't remember his name, which is making my point perfectly, has a much greater story than Roosevelt. He becomes essentially the first person in charge of indigenous groups in, in Brazil, and he guides them across this, this wasteland to get to the headwaters of the river. It's, it's a much more interesting story in so many ways. In the same way that if you look at Canadian rivers, the First Nation groups had a presence on so many of those expeditions. And they, they were on rivers that they already knew that they took Mackenzie on or they took any of those early chart makers on. They were on previously traveled land. Uh, Burton, who uh, you know, essentially discovers the Nile, um, there was a, a man uh, who was known as City Bombay, I believe, who was a, a, one of the people who was on the early expeditions of Westerners into Africa, who arguably might have been one of the first people to sail the length of the Nile. Um, but it's, it's debatable itself. But that's somebody who's been lost in sort of through time. And they must have had leadership qualities. They must have had this survival instinct. They must have had great communication. They must have been... Must have been multilingual. They must have had all these facets that we we should be celebrating and understanding. 
Yeah, to go back to Shackleton, uh, I I saw this quote. I don't know who uh, it was just on the internet there, so I can't attribute to any, anyone. But it says leadership is not about being the best. Leadership is about making everyone else better. Yeah, a good a good leader allows the idiosyncratic elements and strengths to shine, and doesn't rope them in, but 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 directs them. You take that energy and you direct it. And I think for a lot of people who are attracted to the outdoors, that not by means all of them, but many of them are underserved by traditional education and need to be shown a direction to express themselves and to feel embraced by a community. And we, the outdoors can do that in a way that a concrete edifice can't. There's, there's a warmth and a glow in the outdoors that it can be truly inclusive and can be truly supportive with the right mentorship. So what are some other strategies that people can use to find value in difficult situations that may be headed for disaster? So fast forward to, you know, the things are not going well. Uh, what, what do you feel they can do to, um, yeah, find some value in that and, and turn it around? Like humor is, is, is one of the most powerful healers, motivators, uh, breaking of the ice. It's not to be underestimated at all on a professional and personal level that humor at the right time has tremendous potential for allowing people to take the next step forward because it, it, it gives the outlet to say, yeah, this is the worst $1,000 I've ever spent on a guiding experience. And I can't believe that I'm this uncomfortable for a thousand dollars. And I've got to tip you, which makes it even more uncomfortable. Uh, but you've made me laugh. Like it's it's. I was I was on a a trip uh, across the channel on a racing boat, and uh, the electrics went out in one of the busiest uh, shipping channels in the world. And they were trying to duct tape like lights to the rigging, to the shrouds. And I was fantastically oblivious to the danger we were under um, with these tankers going by and what have you. And uh, it slowly dawned on me how bad it was because the guy whose boat it was was a weapons officer from the Navy. And he was taking it really seriously. And I started to get a bit uncomfortable. And... Uh, as it sort of progressed through the evening and it was getting darker, it had got pretty heavy on the boat and pretty scary because now we had the only visibility we had on a rolling sea was if we were seeing the peaks of the light over the top of the waves of other boats. And because we'd lost electric, we didn't have radio either. So it was just a fantastic sort of cluster of events. And I think at some point, one of the crew just declared that now is the time to have a really good sandwich. And it, I remember eating on the weather side this sandwich and everybody was focused on how great the sandwich was. And that sort of put us in a position to say, well, there is some success on this trip is we're having a great picnic, which was true. And we made it through. We hit where we were going to go. But humor and food was a glorious distraction to what it could have been a very, very uh, scarring experience for a novice sailor. And it, it they pitched it right to me to make me feel comfortable by giving me food 
and then concentrating on a great picnic site and then sort of slowly talking about what we were going through and it, and it all worked out okay. But again, it was, it was gentle leadership at the right time. It's, that's an art and it's an art that used to be crafted by years in the Alps of being exposed to these hostelries and waiting on people and sort of being the consummate guide. And now it's done by going to the AMGA or going through guide school and five years later, you're out in the hill on your own and you, you haven't got the same strength of service behind you to help you in that difficult moment of communication. It's, yeah, a four-year diploma hasn't necessarily put you in the position to know when to inject humor at the right time or know when to be gentle. So you hit the nail on the head. It, it does take uh, time to build up that experience to be able to recognize how to how to push people the right amount, how to shape it as the positive narrative, and to understand how to get the best out of everybody, right? Because they all have different levels of of risk tolerance, resiliency, um, interest in in pushing themselves and and suffering and all of those kinds of things. And the humor thing, I totally agree with the the risk that comes with that. It, it's funny when you look at comedians, you can see that 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 the the funniest ones are often they have a, a lot of jokes that you're not you're looking at and you're like that's actually not that funny, and and they they because they're pushing right to the edge right and and you're like oh that was a bad one I know, that was a little bit too far to push that one oh that was really funny now that was that was really good and humor is is such a tough one so you really have to know your. Um, your audience. And I find the other thing just to add on to this is finding the value in the moment. I had a situation where I was leading this, this uh, lady skiing. And she was kind of a, yeah, she was on the cusp of, of easier intermediate terrain. And I took her down this, this slope and I made a miscalculation in that the slope would have been fine for her, except that it was frozen solid. What had happened the day before was it heated up melted and then it refroze and i didn't i just didn't put it all together that that's the part of the run that would be frozen so we went down and the snow was just horrendous and i used every coaching technique that we could used all the stuff we talked about um to to get down used all the strategies coaching positive kept her focused on the moment, all that stuff. And so we get down and she was definitely stressed and I was stressed because she was stressed, right? And I get down and I'm like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. So first of all, look back at what you did. That was hard. If it felt hard, it's because it was hard, okay? Second of all, look at look at how we got down. I want you to remember the, the techniques that we used and the strategies so that if you end up in a situation in the future, you can use these same things to help yourself out. And then I said, okay, I know that was really hard, but honestly, wasn't it way better that you experienced it with me than with your husband? Because if you were in that situation and it was just you and your husband, you can imagine what what that would have been like for you. And and there's another point there, which is where where we make a decision that doesn't fit right for a guest that we own it. 
that we say, that's on me. And let me explain what got me to that position. Because that also allows that, that conversation to happen in a more elevated level. Because I think often in failure, there's a need to blame. And if, you, if you're taking the blame or you're helping to share some level of, of responsibility, it models the ability to look back at it and say, oh, you know what, I, I should have been a bit more hydrated. I should have had a snack. I didn't sleep well last night. They can own some other pieces there. We, we, we model the behavior we want to see in our guests. So if you want to be on that end of shouty and belligerent, that's what your guests are going to be. And anybody who aspires to that level of leadership, that's awesome. Go for it. But it, 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 I can't think there's much joy in it. Because that what it comes back to at the end is conveying joy. It's in all these activities, if we can have a level of joy of someone leaving or achieving, then that, that positivity flows. That's, that's, that's a gift. And the, the idea, I think that's one of the reasons why I moved away from some wilderness programming is the level of suffering that some people went through uh, in order to complete uh, actually didn't have the game we thought it did. It's, it's what is the idea that anybody leaves an activity or a session with the phrase, you know enough to be dangerous is my, is my pet peeve in outdoor education and outdoor world is that we should be teaching enough to be safe. You now know enough to be safe. And I, I, I think that that, if I went back into outdoor ed on the same level I did in my 20s, that would be the difference I would bring in is a much deeper commitment to uh, giving people a higher level of mastery early on, like the idea that they can control a lot more and have less uh, reliance on me to be the purveyor of safety, that they can police themselves. That's what I would aspire to. So have you ever been faced with a situation where someone you were leading had a really hard time pushing you pushing through the challenge, through their challenge and discomfort that they were facing? And how did you deal with that? I, th I think I've had lots of those experiences where people have questioned whether they can get through something, but that's part of what that guiding background was. It was, it was, it was also laying out the realities of the, of the situation. I mean, I, I have an experience from Australia where the accompanying teacher on a school group breaks down physically and kind of has an emotional breakdown and becomes almost catatonic and unfunctional. And he's thinking we're going to be at a helicopter amount. We're in a super remote location. It's not going to happen. And we, we need to get to the river. That's our way out is floating down the river. And at the same time, we had to talk to that guy he'd sort of disrobed in front of the kids. He'd sort of had this major breakdown and we had to rebuild that, uh, his confidence in himself in front of this group of kids he's going to go back to school with. And he'd had this complete breakdown. And we, I think I did a pretty good job with it. That day was totally epic uh, on lots of different levels of thunderstorms and people throwing their boots away. And I burnt my eyebrows off starting a fire with raft glue. And it, and it just kept going like for two days. It was disaster after disaster of cascade effect. But the, the biggest thing is to meet people where they're at and not where I'm at. As a guide, you have to go to where they are. 
because they will never get to where I am until you've talked to them and understood what's going on and helped them chart the path. And it's about that personal connection. And it's about empathy in that moment. Even, even if it's so dire a situation, you have to empathize and understand what is driving their fear. Because if you don't, you're going to keep repeating it and you're not going to solve it. Empathy is one of the most sorely needed things in society is to, is to stop judging and to empathize, to sort of see what, to understand where someone's coming from. And we do that in a moment and healing begins and healing can be progress. Healing is taking a step out on the trail or moving off of the ledge or, or starting to get back in the boat to be able to go down the rapid. Healing for us is, is, is a continued journey. And we, we just need to be able to ask the right question and truly listen and not fill space with what we think. It's listen. Listen is silence. Moose, thanks so much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Moose and the training that he offers, you can visit moosemutlow.com. You can also find both of his books, Searching, Finding Purpose, Laughter and Distraction Through Search and Rescue, and When Accidents Happen, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer at Amazon. We will post links in our show notes. Okay, Jordy, what were your takeaways from what Moose had to say? Wow, where to start? There's a lot to unpack here. First off, Moose talked about defining misadventure. So misadventure is something that doesn't go well, but you can end up with a good story to tell afterwards. Misadventure has a range. They can go from being funny stories of bad decision-making to catastrophic disasters. It goes without saying that we are trying to avoid the latter as they can be very traumatic. Moose also talked about there being a storytelling component. Both adventures and misadventures are defined by the stories that we can tell about them afterwards. Containable misadventures often have much more engaging stories to tell than adventures that go perfectly well. And lastly, Moose talked about course correction. Being able to take a step back and look at the situation is often what stops things becoming an epic misadventure. Taking a pause can help us to slow things down so that we can articulate the decision-making process effectively instead of just getting caught reacting to situations. This can often lead to worse outcomes. Yeah, great points, Jordy. Uh, some of the reasons for misadventure that Moose shared with us is that people tend to underestimate the challenge and overestimate their ability and often fail to plan and to prepare ahead. One of the other points that he touched on was keeping people in their challenge zone. You have your best gains when you operate just outside your comfort zone. Taking people right to the edge of the extreme is counterproductive and is rarely that beneficial. This is something that Moose noted. Instead, we should be trying to put people in what I call the challenge zone, and we have talked about numerous times on this show. The challenge zone is where we feel excitement, but we aren't so overwhelmed that we develop tunnel vision and are gripped with stress. And when it comes to managing misadventure, we need to realize that when people are stressed, we need to own our mistakes that are made and draw attention to the lessons learned along the way. And of course, try to keep it fun. 
careful use of humor can also be a useful tool on this last point. Well, that was a great discussion. We are going to leave this episode off here. Thank you so much to Moose Mudlow for joining us. Just a quick reminder before we go, if you have not already done so, make sure you follow the show so that you can keep up with new episodes. We have a lot more great content coming your way, including more focus on skills and case studies. Thank you very much for joining us.